Greetings, podcast world. Today, I want to talk to you about holiness and purity. Okay, I know that doesn't sound that exciting, but just hang with me here for a bit. Back in the 1980s, Sheila and I were deeply involved in a church whose primary teaching was a message of holiness and purity. Every teaching of Jesus, every letter of the Apostle Paul, every Old Testament passage was seen through this filter of holiness and purity. For me, and for many I have spoken to since then, the message was at best quite out of balance, and for some, they even labeled it as abusive. But it wasn't just in our little church. The purity culture was quite popular in Christianity during that time and is still today in many circles. So is that kind of emphasis on holiness and purity a good thing or a bad thing? Welcome to Deeply Spiritual But Rather Uncertain. So let's begin by talking about the politics of first-century Judaism. I'm aware that the word politics is quite loaded these days, and so I probably need to define what I mean when I use the word. When I speak of politics, I'm using it in a very broad context, rather than like specific governmental-slash-partisan policies. In the very broad context, it's about how we organize society or communities in order to function well. Churches have politics, businesses have politics, and first century Judaism certainly had a political structure or a political climate. And that political climate had everything to do with purity and holiness. I guess you could like call it systemic purity. It was built right into the system. We usually define holiness as being separate or set apart. And that's how the Jews saw themselves, set apart from the world around them. So there were all kinds of rules and traditions to make sure that they continued to be set apart. Some of those rules were based on the laws of the Torah, and some were added on top of the law. So, for example, the Torah says to observe the Sabbath, but by the first century, there were some 600 rules around that one commandment. And when you read the Torah, this seems to make sense. Leviticus 19, for example, begins with these words, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The passage then goes on to define what that looks like. It's one of those passages that when you read, there are times you're thinking, Wow, this is great. Like when he speaks of generosity and caring for the poor. It speaks of how we treat each other and honesty and honor. There's some great stuff there. But then it also says you can't have a tattoo. And I'm guessing that messes up about half of us. It says you can't wear a garment of cloth that's made of two materials. And I'll bet you have something on right now that has two kinds of materials. It even says that you shouldn't trim your beard. 
Well, I'm not here to dive into this particular passage today, but I just want you to see that there's a reason that holiness and purity were important in Judaism. I think we need to distinguish between personal purity and systemic purity, or cultural purity, and there's a big difference. I don't have a problem with the idea of personal holiness and purity. In a more contemporary, maybe less religious language, it's just the values that I choose to incorporate into my life. I think that defining those for yourself is a good thing. What are the values by which I choose to live my, my life? These are the things from which everything else flows. That's important. But the problem with holiness and purity as a political system is that it becomes very exclusionary. If you are pure, you are in, and if you are impure, you are out. That's how it was in the first century. Sometimes you didn't even have control over your purity and impurity. So if you were a leper, for example, you were automatically impure. And since leprosy was not curable, you were basically an outcast for life. Being rich didn't automatically make you pure and righteous, but being poor was most likely a sign of impurity. It's because wealth was seen as a blessing from God, and if you were poor, then there must be a problem somewhere. Also, you probably couldn't afford the sacrifices on a regular basis that were required for purity. Women had it particularly difficult in the politics of purity. First of all, when a woman was having her period, she was impure. So that's like 25% of the time you were out. If you were not able to have children, impure. If you were a widow and had no man to rule over you, impure. Generally, men were seen as more righteous, more holy than women. Then, of course, there was the issue of Gentile versus Jew. Everybody that was not Jewish was seen as impure. They were out. This attitude lingered long into the first century church and became a topic of much debate for many years. The entire system of Judaism was organized around holiness and purity, the righteous and the unrighteous, the pure and the impure, who's in and who's out. But Jesus steps into the systemic purity culture with a completely different narrative. We've spoken before about how Jesus changed the Jewish narrative over and over and over again. And he did it when it came to the purity culture. Okay, so let's start in Luke chapter 6, and I want to read this passage to you starting at verse 27. It's a little bit lengthy, so hang with me. This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. Now jump down to verse 35. Instead, love your enemies, 
do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting the way the children of the Most High act, for he is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. And here's the verse. Be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. It seems that Jesus has just changed the Leviticus 19 passage that says, Be holy as God is holy, to be compassionate as God is compassionate. Compassion and holiness are not really the same thing. Now, your translation of that verse might read a little bit differently than the one I just read from. It might say, be merciful as God is merciful. And apparently, either word is an acceptable translation from the Greek, but I much prefer the word compassionate. Mercy has some implications that compassion doesn't. Mercy seems to imply that there's this hierarchy involved. The one with the power has mercy over the one that doesn't. That's not always true, but it kind of feels that way to me sometimes. It, It also seems that I need mercy when I've done something wrong or messed up in some way. And and compassion is something very different than that. But God as compassionate is not a new idea. You find it over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm chapter 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That is repeated over and over in the Psalms. Joel 2 says, For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Lamentation says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. Nehemiah says, But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I think you get the point. Compassion is talked about over and over in the Old Testament. But the word that is used for compassion in the Hebrew Scriptures has a singular vision to it that is actually translated as womb. Compassion, the words compassion and womb in Hebrew are very closely related. So to say God is compassionate is almost to say that God is womb-like. It's like saying, as a mother loves and cares for her children, so God loves and cares for us. Compassionate has nuances of life-giving and nourishing and caring, all, by the way, very feminine characteristics of God. And when we look at it this way, Compassion is both a feeling and an action. In fact, we could say that the feeling of compassion drives us to action. Mothers don't care for their children purely out of a sense of duty. It comes from somewhere deep inside of them. In fact, it's almost impossible for a mother to do anything less. 
So when Jesus says be compassionate as God is compassionate, it says two very clear things to me. The first is that compassion is at the very core of who God is. God is life-giving and nourishing and caring and compassionate. I would take it as far to say that compassion is the core characteristic of God. Secondly, and this is what I really want to get to, Jesus is, is challenging the politics of purity and holiness in the first century. He's coming against the politics of exclusion and replacing it with a culture of inclusion. He's not doing away with personal purity, but he's directly challenging the politics of purity and holiness that creates this us and them, this in and out, the politics of exclusion. But it's not just in this one statement that Jesus does that. So let's start in the, in the book of Mark, chapter 7. The Pharisees, who were the enforcers when it came to the purity culture, noticed that Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. Yes, that was really a thing. Not that washing your hands is a bad thing, especially if you're a fisherman, but they're making this huge deal about it. The question that they asked Jesus was, why aren't your disciples following the purity and holiness culture that we all live by? Firstly, Jesus responds to them by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That was a direct attack on the purity culture. But he didn't just leave it there. He goes on in this passage. And he says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then jump down to verse 14. It says, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. It's a direct challenge to this politics, this culture of holiness and purity. In both Luke and Matthew, there are sections that theologians have called the seven woes. It's because they all start with, woe to you. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, those enforcers of the purity culture once again. And all seven of these woes are a direct attack on that purity, that who's in and who's out culture. In one of the woes, he says, you are really good at tithing which was part of the purity culture. But he says you neglect the more important things like justice, compassion, and faithfulness. Jesus is clearly saying that a culture of compassion trumps a culture of holiness every time. Then, of course, there's the story of the Good Samaritan. You probably know the story. This Jewish man was mugged and left in a ditch for dead, 
two religious leaders came by and looked at him and did nothing. And I don't know that it was because they didn't want to help. I think it was because their purity culture wouldn't let them help. See, it looked like he was dead. And if they touched him and he was dead, they would suddenly become impure. And they were too religious and too committed to the purity culture to risk it. So then the Samaritan guy, the one who was impure anyway, by birth, he comes and he helps the man because there's no risk for him of becoming impure. Then Jesus says, so who is the neighbor? The guy who's impure. Brilliant. The person who they had excluded was actually included. A culture of compassion always trumps a culture of purity. When you look at the way Jesus lived his life, it was a constant challenge to the purity culture. Not only did he talk to lepers, which wasn't allowed, but he also touched them. That just totally made him impure by Jewish purity cultural rules. He walked into a graveyard to help a person who was possessed by a demon, not allowed. He healed people on the Sabbath, not allowed. Then there was the way that he treated women. Women were not allowed to sit in any teachings by a rabbi. Remember the story of Mary and Martha and the conflict that rose up because Mary was busy in the kitchen and Martha was sitting at the feet of Jesus? Jesus and Martha were breaking all the rules, challenging the system of purity. I love the story of the woman who came and anointed Jesus' feet. Jesus is with some guys in an all-boys club. A woman comes in. Now, first of all, a woman was not allowed. But she wasn't like any woman. She was a woman of ill repute. And on top of that, she doesn't have a veil like she's supposed to. And her hair is not tied up like it's supposed to be. And she comes to Jesus. She touches him. That's not allowed. She weeps on his feet and then dries his feet with her hair. Everything is wrong. There's like a hundred rules that were broken in that one episode. Clearly, the culture of compassion trumps the culture of holiness. I could go on and on because Jesus was challenging this system all the time. I remember a number of years ago I heard Andy Stanley speaking to a group of pastors and church leaders in South Africa. And he made a statement that I won't ever forget. He said, don't let your theology get in the way of your ministry. Compassion trumps holiness. So many people have been hurt and even abused by a church where holiness and purity trumps compassion. Again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we shouldn't have certain values in our lives. But as soon as we take our values, our purity, our holiness, and begin to oppose that on others, we, we start to create a very unhelpful culture at the very least. We need communities that see compassion as their core value. We need churches where compassion is at the center of everything, where the core value is inclusion, 
and not exclusion. Churches that have some kind of a slogan that says, everybody is welcome here, are a dime a dozen these days. And I think they're really good people, but I think that way too often the slogan is not actually lived out. You're welcome here. But because you're a woman, there are certain places you're not actually welcome, like you can't teach unless there are no men in the room, even if you're a way better teacher than the man is. Or because you're a woman, you can't serve as an elder, even if you're CEO of a company, unless your husband is there, because as an elder team, that seems to be acceptable. I guess the woman needs her husband to keep her in line or something. Or how about this? You're welcome here, but because you are queer, you can't lead a small group, even if you truly love Jesus and are a great leader. Or you're welcome here, but you can't be on our worship team because you're living with somebody that you're not married to. Let me be honest. These are things I used to support and actually enforced. I was wrong. And I deeply regret the hurt that it caused. I still regret the people who left the church never to be seen again because I had a system of holiness and purity over compassion. Okay, let me get real political here for just a minute. In Texas, where I currently am, there's a movement supported by many Christians that's an attack on transgender children. If a parent is seen as supporting their child who is struggling with their gender identity, they can be accused of child abuse. No matter where you stand on the whole issue of LGBTQ, what part of that shows compassion to the child? It's systemic religious purity culture out of control. When Jesus said, be compassionate as God is compassionate, I think he actually meant it. Don't create a system that puts purity and holiness in front of compassion. In fact, create systems where the very core value is compassion, where compassion trumps holiness every time. Okay, I've probably offended enough people now, so I guess I better close off. But I think you can tell that this subject is one that I'm quite passionate about. I'd love to hear your thoughts, if you agree or even if you disagree. I'll put my social media context in the show notes, and, um, and you can catch me there. Or, and if you don't follow me, please do while you're there. So anyway, until next time, stay safe. I'll be back soon. Shalom. Shalom.